Welcome to the 35th episode of Heavier Than I Look, a podcast dedicated to healing, recovery, and storytelling. My name is Kira Russo, and I'm your host. If you feel that listening may aggravate your suffering or complicate your recovery, please take this notice as a trigger warning. Discuss with your support system as necessary, and as always, take what you need and leave what you don't. Welcome to the last episode of Season 3 of HTIL. We've made it through 35 regularly scheduled and one bonus episode in just over a year. Today, we are finishing up Season 3 with a case analysis of the media portrayals of Lady Diana Spencer and what such tells us about her life, suffering, and triumph. We've explored Diana in snippets over the course of 35 episodes, most specifically with her own public admission of bulimia. She was one of the first public figures to be outspoken about their experiences with an eating disorder. And her bravery then is deserving of a lot of things now. We are having a bit of a Diana resurgence in the past few years or so, with Diana's lived experience becoming the content of many mediums, such as film and television. Her life is one we might not ever fully understand, but her identity as a survivor of an eating disorder and her subsequent advocacy in the eating disorder world is something that we can appreciate here. This episode will explore two representations of Diana's experience within the royal family, both that touch specifically on her bulimia. One is from the Netflix TV show The Crown, whose fourth season introduced a young Diana integrating into the royal family before her marriage with Prince Charles. The other representation is from Pablo Lorraine Spencer, starring Kristen Stewart which chronicles three days spent at the Sandringham Estate during the royal family's Christmas festivities in 1991. As previously discussed, for people who have suffered from eating disorders, it can be an incredibly cathartic and empowering experience to see on screen our own story. However, most representations fall into the trap of glamorization, romanticization, or triggering content. There is a delicacy and thoroughness required when depicting eating disorders, And in my opinion, both of the representations we will discuss are necessary steps forward in bringing eating disorders and those who suffer and recover from them into public discourse. I utilize a critical lens in this episode's examination. And as much as I will investigate their faults, I actually am very much encouraged by these depictions. And although we unfortunately will not ever have Diana's approval or critique of her own narrative, I believe that what is shown in both these examples is a large step in the right direction regarding eating disorder portrayal on screen. Both of the representations I will discuss below include spoilers and might be triggering for some. With this in mind, please exercise caution when seeing both the episodes of The Crown and the film Spencer. The Crown includes trigger warnings in both of the episodes that depict Diana's bulimia. This, in my opinion, is the first requirement of any media's visualization of an eating disorder. The warning also includes a link to resources for those looking, which is an encouraging extra step. The show illustrates that Diana began her struggles with bulimia after moving into Kensington Palace. Her first binge is positioned almost as of boredom. Diana is aimlessly wandering the royal halls at night until she finds the kitchen and the prepared food. This is seemingly after weeks of no contact from her fiancé, Prince Charles, and incredible isolation within the palace, Diana only ever visited by staff. Directly after her first binge and a very stark cut, Diana is seen hunched over a toilet purging. The two behaviors are thus beside one another in an indistinguishable web. 
the binge, and the purge. Such a stark cut also prompts a bit of a shock factor, an abrasive surprise for the audience, which I think speaks well to the jarring and overwhelming nature of eating disorders, especially the harm inherent in a purge. There is a certain seriousness in this jolting edit, as food immediately and consequently becomes destructive, without warning. There is no time for a breath, no time to discharge discomfort, no possibility of preparation. This, I think, effectively places the audience in Diana's shoes. Her bulimia continues after an encounter with Camilla Parker Bowles, Prince Charles's current wife and previous romantic involvement. Parker Bowles, in the context of the episode, places doubt on the legitimacy and intimacy of Diana's relationship with Charles. His absence is felt profoundly, most so by Diana, whose isolation within the palace walls is grave. Charles himself likely contributed to the worsening of Diana's eating disorder. Parker Bowles, in the context of the show, claims Charles doesn't eat lunch because of its perceived health advantage. So he participates in restriction, an influence of which may have worsened Diana's disorder. Diana also claimed that Charles, her soon-to-be husband, had remarked at her chubby waistline, a comment of which surely aggravated body image issues. Throughout the episode and the rest of the season, it is intimately clear the royal family's complete misunderstanding of eating disorders and unwillingness to address the concern of Diana's behavior, which they are illustrated of being aware of. Princess Margaret, Queen Elizabeth's sister, remarks, quote, People do the strangest things when they are unhappy, end quote. Clearly, this is an oversimplification of the disease and marks reluctance to sympathy or compassion. Netflix, which has previously faced criticism for glamorizing disordered eating, which was explored more deeply in HTIL episode 14, a case analysis of Netflix's To the Bone, they brought in a UK-based eating disorder recovery organization to consult on the series. Actress Emma Corrin, who played the young Diana, mentioned that it was, quote, something she was determined to portray very well, end quote. And she worked very closely with the script team on developing that storyline. Corrin also mentioned how Diana starting the conversation in the 90s necessitated a continuation and further exploration within the context of the show. I applaud Corrin for her steadfastness and talent as an actress taking on the weighty role of a young Diana. I'm curious to see how the show will continue to handle Diana's ongoing struggles with bulimia and body image, considering it was a disease that proliferated for nearly a decade. In the next season of The Crown, which is expected to release in 2022, Diana's story will continue, although by another actress. I'm wondering how they might address her introduction to recovery, as Diana herself said that it wasn't until she started seeing a therapist that her mental health improved. This is of special importance considering the show depicted Diana's recovery as self-induced. One of the later shots of Diana's purging was her deciding not to make herself throw up. She sat down by the toilet and hugged herself and decided she wouldn't purge. We are unaware of the character transition intended by the filmmakers within this moment, yet it seems as if a bit of an oversimplification of how one lets go and stops eating disorder behavior. However, maybe the show moving on and remaining inconclusive about Diana's continued struggles is a step in the right direction. It shows how our culture largely abandons public discourse of this disease. Overall, I really appreciated how this show jarringly and delicately depicted Diana's eating disorder. It demonstrated how eating disorders are largely isolative, conducted in silence, and even if the cage you are trapped in is gold and gilded, it is still a cage. Pablo Lorraine, in his film Spencer, continues this trajectory. 
It takes place a few years after season four of The Crown during a weekend with the Mountbatten-Windsors at Sandringham Estate in Norfolk, England. The 72-hour period, which spans Christmas Eve, Christmas, and Boxing Day, is a never-ending procession of lavish feasts, formal wardrobe changes, and strange traditions held on to since Queen Victoria's days. Before beginning to write, Oscar-nominated screenwriter Stephen Knight tracked down former Sandringham staff members who had witnessed Diana's holiday visits to the estate. He relied on first-hand accounts of the holidays rather than royal biographies or other source materials about the royal family. It is self-claimed as a fable from a true tragedy and depicts more or less a psychological breakdown of Diana over the three days with her in-laws. This film, in my opinion, made excellent use of symbolism and motif to express the psychological orientation of one tormented by food, body image, and control. The first shots of the film align the kitchen of the estate as if it were a military base. The language, such as brigade and breach, is very militaric, and the chefs who are working during the weekend literally march in from outside, the ingredients and utensils transported by military officials. These are part of preparatory measures, most of which are to ensure the success of the Christmas time for the royals, measured exclusively by their desired weight gain of exactly three pounds. In fact, the second thing we see, apart from the kitchen as a glorified military base, is a member of the royal family being weighed upon beginning their winter holiday. Your every bite is monitored and prompted, no longer yours. If you haven't gained the necessary three, it is determined that you didn't enjoy yourself and the kitchen staff haven't done their job. This is a tradition that dates back to the 1900s when King Edward VII wanted to ensure that people ate enough during the holidays but a tradition undoubtedly a nightmare for an eating disorder sufferer like Diana. And this is not a nightmare that began upon her engagement or marriage with Prince Charles, but in fact one that began as a child. Her family rented Park House, which is on Sandringham's estate, and they were often invited to the Royals' Christmas festivities, an experience Diana dreaded every year. In a 2020 documentary about the holidays with the Royals at Sandringham, Diana's former butler, Paul Burrell, said that she used to tell him that she was, quote, crawling the walls by the end of a Sandringham Christmas and couldn't wait to escape, end quote. In the course of the film, Diana attempts to escape, to go visit her childhood residence, yet finds herself trapped within the barbed wire and by the security guards of the estate. Diana spent her early years in the same property she would later find herself as a princess, or perhaps more accurately, a prisoner. This is illustrated in the film. Diana finds that her curtains have actually been sewn shut, a metaphor of how she is trapped within the royal walls, and which she attempts to wrench open with a wire clipper, the sharp edges of which she eventually takes to her own skin. It is an effort to escape from the gilded cage she lives within and from the blood that seeps just under her skin. Her suffering is largely silenced, reflective of the orders known to the kitchen staff who are scolded by a poster in the kitchen that reads, quote, keep the noise to a minimum, they can hear you, end quote. Diana as with the kitchen staff is part of the you, while the royal family and all who comprise it are they. This is purposeful pronoun usage as Diana is immediately separated, distinguished, and isolated from others. The perfect place for her eating disorder to worsen. Diana has particular difficulty with the strict regulations of dress upon her stay at Sandringham. Numerous outfit changes are expected multiple times a day, and as mentioned frequently on this podcast, 
Clothing can be dreadful for one who is struggling with their eating and body image. Synchronously and fittingly, the dresses Diana is expected to wear are tagged P.O.W., both to represent her role as Princess of Wales and Prisoner of War. There is a repeated allusion to Anne Boleyn, who was the Queen of England from 1533 to 1536. Her story is tragic. After three miscarriages, her husband, King Henry VIII, grew old of her companionship and sought reasons to end their marriage. Henry had Anne investigated for high treason. She was eventually arrested, tried, and beheaded. Modern historians view the charges against her, such as adultery and plotting to kill the king, as largely unconvincing. Diana, believe it or not, was Anne Boleyn's 13th great-grandniece through an ancestor who married Anne's sister, Mary Boleyn. Within the film, Diana is actually given a biography of Anne Boleyn's life by Major Alastair Gregory, who functions as a sort of servant and watch of the house. His part in the film is fictionalized, but likely inspired by several individuals of a similar position. He finds particular fascination in monitoring and punishing Diana. Thus, this gift is marked as a warning, a cautionary tale for the trajectory of Diana's life. The figure of Anne Boleyn comes to haunt Diana, and these hallucinations in stark particularity are envisioned as Diana herself, dressed in the garb Anne might have worn several centuries prior. Thus, the past in its tragedy remains inseparable from the present, a tragedy no less. This historical illusion is brought to a tangible present with Charles's Christmas gift to Diana, a pearl necklace. Diana is sickened by this gift, a set of pearls she knows was also given to his mistress, Camilla Parker Bowles, and she consistently attempts to rid them from their suffocating position at the base of her neck. The pearls around her neck are eerily ominous to Anne Boleyn's untimely beheading. Diana, at the beginning of the film, funnily claims that her weight is half in jewelry in order to dodge the required weighing upon entry. She snaps the necklace in one of her presumed dream sequences at Christmas dinner, sending the pearls scattering all around her, including into her pea soup. Then she proceeds to eat one of the pearls, cracking them painfully with her teeth before the next shot of her en route to purge, tormented. Thus, the methods of dying and death are delicately interwoven, intersected. Anne was beheaded because of her infertility and presumed undesirability from her husband, Henry VIII. This film replicates the extended, grueling route to death for Diana because of her own husband's infidelity, while also subverting the cause of death with the introduction of her bulimia. I also find it interesting the geographical location of Diana's potential death around her esophagus. Bulimia is, in a way, a disease that proliferates in the esophagus. What you put in your mouth and swallow down your throat is regurgitated based on how successfully you can stick your index and middle fingers down your throat. The pearls sit at this exact place, where the shame of the food consumed resides and subsequently rises to meet again. In a scene later on, Prince Charles and Diana are at opposite ends of a pool table, Diana fingering the white ball, which sets all of the other colors in motion, while Charles is behind the black ball which must be last or else it forces everything to begin again. Clearly, the balls are emblematic of their greater roles in the relationship. Charles, in his infidelity, contributes to history repeating itself, from Anne to Diana, and the tremendous suffering of his wife. 
Diana, interestingly, fingers the white ball with the same index and middle finger she uses to binge. Diana, interestingly, fingers the white ball with the same index and middle finger she uses, she uses to purge. And thus, these two fingers have heightened significance in her disordered agony. Charles advises her, quote, You have to be able to make your body do things you hate for the good of the country, end quote. Charles knew of Diana's bulimia, yet directly regarded her as inconsiderate to all of those who had a hand in making the food, even suggesting that her behavior was insulting to the bees who made the honey. So many of the rituals she's expected to comply with, by her husband, by the institution, or otherwise, involve turning over control of her body. Diana's bulimia becomes another way in which she fails to behave properly, as if a choice as if a tantrum, as if desired. Despite the majority of the royal family well aware of Diana's suffering, her only comfort comes in the form of her eight-year-old son, Prince William, who begs her to feel better. The film demonstrates Diana's attempted suicide, which according to Andrew Morton's 1992 biography, of which Diana secretly contributed to, entitled Diana, Her True Story, happened during Christmas time in 1982 down the stairs at Sandringham. In the film, Diana stands at the top of the decrepit stairs at Park House, her childhood home, which now sits abandoned on the estate's property, and nearly throws herself down them before ripping the pearl necklace again from her neck, pieces of which propel themselves down the stairs of the abandoned house. Instead of her life, the union of the necklace is destroyed. What is threatened to destroy her her husband, his affair, his family, and how she copes, her eating disorder, her self-harm, her suicidal ideation, intersect in a dramatic moment of self-salvation, release, and absolution. She lets go and loses the weight of the jewelry and all it represents. In one of the first lines of dialogue, Diana chillingly asks, quote, Will they kill me? End quote. There is a shadow of doubt to the culprits of her untimely death, questions raised by the filmmakers. Who did kill her, and did they succeed? This film depicts Diana's attempt of resistance, even if that comes in the form of self-harm or mutilation, from the weight of the political forces and family interests beyond her control. I will say, apart from the seemingly authentic and tragic portrayal of Diana's suffering, this film does not have a trigger warning in the beginning. In my opinion, it is necessary to prepare vulnerable audiences for the graphic level of detail shown. It is the one amendment I would encourage Lorraine to make. In the last minutes of this episode, I would like to privilege Diana's voice above all others. It is the very least of all that she deserves. From an interview in 1995 with Martin Bashir, just two years before her death, quote, I had bulimia for a number of years, and that's like a secret disease. You inflict it upon yourself because your self-esteem is at a low ebb and you don't think you are worthy or valuable. It's like having a pair of arms around you, but it's temporary. It was a symptom of what was going on in my marriage. I was crying out for help but giving the wrong signals and people were using my bulimia as a coat on a hanger. They decided that was the problem. Diana was unstable. End quote. 
All new episodes of HTIL will be uploaded to Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts by 11.59 p.m. each Sunday night if you missed the live broadcast. Feel free to return to old episodes by visiting these sites. If you would like to listen to my own eating disorder story, you can listen on any of these platforms. Please consider sharing the podcast with family, friends, or those who you feel could specifically benefit. If you or someone you love might be struggling with an eating disorder, know that you have my full support and recovery and consider seeking treatment. If you feel treatment may be inaccessible to you, please consider seeking support through Project Heal, which is the largest nonprofit in the United States, delivering prevention, treatment, financing, and recovery support for those struggling with eating disorders. Disordered eating has ruled my life for nearly six years, and I didn't think anything would ever be able to come in between that. Treatment did, and treatment does. If you are in a crisis situation, please contact NEDA's helpline by texting NEDA to 741741. HTL has its very own Instagram and Twitter accounts. If you would like to suggest your own episode topic or interact with the podcast further, please feel free to follow on Instagram at Heavier Than I Look and Twitter at HTL Podcast. If you are interested in sharing your own story as a feature on the show, please direct message me on Instagram or Twitter. Don't be afraid to reach out. I would love to hear from you. My podcast, Heavier Than I Look, aims to empower survivors, educate listeners, and foster conversations surrounding eating disorders and body dysmorphia. Eating disorders demand silence, yet this podcast is an attempt to de-isolate and destigmatize a survivor's experience by giving a voice to each story. We must abandon a quantitative numerical definition of identity and reclaim our self-definition to exist beyond the numbers that rule our lives. In this way, HTIL is a space of healing, recovery, and storytelling. Let us no longer wonder how little space we can comprise, but instead wonder how to make that space one filled with love and sympathy. Goodbye for now.